Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Deep State Radio. I am your host, David Rothkopf, and I'm joining you today from the far end of Long Island. Uh, somewhere out here also is our usual Thursday co-host, Ryan Goodman. You're on Long Island too, right, Ryan? I am, David, yes. Um, so we're, we're nearer to each other. I'm feeling a lot of positivity in the force as a result. And we are joined by, um, let's see, in Washington, D.C., we have Dr. Kavita Patel, formerly of the Obama administration, practicing physician, uh, Brookings. I mean, she's extremely busy. I saw her on MSNBC yesterday. Hi, Kavita. Hi, David. Hi, everyone. And also, I think in Washington or thereabouts, we have Jeremy Canondike, who was also in the Obama administration at USAID and is now with the Center for Global Development. Hi, Jeremy. Hi, David. Good to be here. Are, are you in Washington or thereabouts? Just outside, Tacoma Park, just over the line. No, that's across the line, definitely across the line. And then we have in trying to look at the background, Zoom tells all, uh, David Sanger, maybe in Vermont. Are you in Vermont, David? I I am in Vermont. Sorry, it's raining out or I'd show you the cows. Um, No, it's very nice. And your background (laughs) is very um, august. Yeah. Um, and so we are here. That's what today. we are in Vermont. We're August. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> we are we are here today to talk once again about COVID. The president of the United States has decided to do a daily briefing again, um, and uh, he's he's, he's uh, I don't know. He's inspired many in the punditocracy to say he's turned the corner because. He's agreed to wear a mask, and he seems to um, think that this COVID outbreak is a bad thing. And so that's very presidential. We're really proud of him. Um, he's acting like a big boy. And we just thought we'd talk about where it really is. And so I thought maybe the way to do this today, David, you were part of a team that that, that gave us an update a few days ago on what the policy process was like in the White House and how it broke down. And then we could turn to Kavita and Jeremy, get their reactions to that. And then Ryan will ask some questions and I'll ask some questions, if that's okay with everybody. So David, why don't you kick it off? What are the, the headlines, the main takeaway about the policy process in the Trump administration in the midst of the worst public health crisis in 100 years? Well, David, this was chapter two of uh, our sort of history of policymaking or avoiding 
uh, policy decisions in the Trump administration during this time. You may recall that in early April, we wrote a fairly lengthy uh, reconstruction of how the president avoided the issue in January and February, how he got angry at uh, cabinet members and Center for Disease Control uh, officials who were warning people to get ready for a, a bigger problem, uh, and then how he was sort of reluctantly dragged into the decision to, to uh, announce sort of the first stay-at-home um, actions. Um, what we tried to do here was pick that up and say, what happened from March through June? And the answer was that there were a couple of critical weeks in April that ended up setting the stage for the resurgence we've seen in the past couple of weeks. This period started around Easter when the president told the nation that he was going off to Camp David to make the biggest decision of his presidency, which was when was the right time to reopen. But when he got down from Camp David, he didn't make the decision. Instead, what he wanted to do was kick the entire thing back to the governors, make the announcement that he had given all of them every, all the tools they needed, the testing, uh, the ventilators, the PPE, and now it was up to them to do this um, individually. And what was astounding about our reconstruction of the discussion was that there was sort of no realization or no acknowledgement, at least, that this is an issue that, of course, runs across state lines, and that having each governor make their own decision was an invitation to later spread. We also spent a lot of time examining Dr. Deborah Burks and the kind of presentation she was making, and illuminated in this reporting the split between her and her mentor, uh, Dr. Tony Fauci, um, Dr. Fauci is not a great believer in models. Uh, Dr. Burks believed very heavily in the University of Washington model, and then uh, also in the thought that we would follow the path that Italy did, fast up, sharp down. In fact, New York City- Trump, the, went, Trump went along with that because he's always been a big believer in models. That's right. So usually swimsuit models. That, that's right. But, <laughs> Um, uh, and perhaps following your example, David, one of the things the president didn't ask about much were what were the assumptions behind the models? Mm. Always an important question to ask, no matter which kind of models you're following out here. Mm -hmm. And, uh, in, in this case, they were looking at University of Washington modeling that showed that right around now we would be down to very few infections and very few deaths. But the assumption in the model, which he didn't spend a whole lot of time examining, was that the country would continue social distancing and lockdowns through about June 1st. And of course, that didn't happen. In fact, as soon as the uh, administration announced its own recommendations for when states should reopen, you know, two weeks of declining infections and other standards, he immediately began undercutting it by making announcements like, liberate the states, let them free, let them get back to work. And his interest in letting the states make all of these decisions 
has now shattered on the issue of what happens if the states decide to keep their schools closed. In fact, last week, he was threatening to hold back federal funding from any school that didn't reopen, which doesn't sound a lot like pushing the decision-making to the states. So, Kavita, sounds like um, everything's perfect in paradise, huh? Oh, no question about it. And and uh, I, I, I pulled up the incredible article, and I think I described this to some of the colleagues because there are some friends that Jeremy knows and that I know that are quoted in here as well. Uh, this is, you know, just to me, one of the most, it was one of the most well done and balanced pieces, but that illustrates kind of these characters, and they're really- You don't are, have to- you don't have to say that. I, do, I know. David I know. is here. I know. I'm, I'm trying not to. I'm trying not to let too much get to Vermont. They've got a lot of gas there anyway. So I, <laughs> I'm going to leave it. I'm going to leave that be. All the cows. Um, but it brought out so much of what I think some of us who have worked inside the administration have kind of been puzzled by because you know it, you have a president who's you know make you know spreading misinformation. And it, it's almost, it's painted as if almost all these science advisors and people are just kind of these kind of helpless, you know, supplicants in a way, when in fact there's a, quite a bit of enablement. And I think there's so much more depth to this and the article brings it out. And, and just to, to get to your point more candidly, um, the interchange between some of the governors where the governors had to call, Governor Newsom in particular, um, that that was very real. And that, that conversation where Governor Newsom had to say, like, can I please have some more supplies? You guys are doing a great job. You could extend that to hospital health system CEOs, very prominent names who have to do the same thing and all had to feel, and I think still to this day, by the way, feel that they have to kind of beg for whatever they, scraps they can receive. And if they were to dare to look as, you know, to dare to make any public statements about the lack of federal support then they would have this mighty rebuke upon them. And that, that I know exists today. Florida has a hospital in Miami where they have said that the feds have kept, you know, said that Governor DeSantis has what he needs. Governor DeSantis has said, no, you know, we don't need anything and the feds are in line. So you can't help but obviously believe that there's a partisan element to this. There's not even transparency around it. And there, well, there's so much to get into, but there's there's um, a concern is that so much of the pride of the executive branch are kind of the people who work in mostly unknown people. And here you see what's interesting about Dr. Burks is, is you see someone who's been a dedicated kind of career servant with people in the Obama administration. Jeremy, I'm sure, has crossed paths with her who had high regards for her but what's taken on kind of this bizarre personality development um, where she's been eager to please the president. And, and I feel like that's something that I see as a theme, even amongst some of the other career, very kind of solid career servants that are in, in these agencies. But it's, it's very candidly, very troubling. Indeed it is. Jeremy, what was your reaction? Yeah, very similar. I mean, I think, I think Dr. Burks comes off quite poorly in the piece um, and, and with good reason. Um, what struck me reading through, and it's something that I've been concerned about with her, her role there for some time, is you know, the degree to which she was presenting the president almost more with political advice than scientific advice. Um, you know, the, the 
the, the IHME model from the University of Washington, I think, is a, is a great example of that. So, you know, as, as David said when he was recounting the article, she chose to, to make that the, the centerpiece of, uh, of how she would brief on what was happening with the, with the outbreak and, uh, and using that to project this confidence and this, you know, this expectation that things were going well. And it's not just, I think, that she didn't sufficiently tell the president about the assumptions that were within the model. I think it's very clear that she chose that model because it was the most optimistic. Um, you know, there was no good reason to think that that model would be the best prediction of what would happen in the United States. In fact, there were many reasons to think it wasn't. Um, and uh, in, in, kind of in, in modeling Twitter, if you will, there was a lot of flack towards that model because, you know, it presumed, uh, it presumed uh, social distancing lasting much longer, obviously, than it did. But more than that, it presumed that the overall shape of the U.S. outbreak would track with China. And the, they used a curve-fitting approach, which basically says rather than, um, you know, rather than projecting how many cases we think are going to spawn other cases uh, using an SEIR model, as it's called, um, they were using a curve fit where they just looked at the shape of China's curve and said, okay, we think that's basically what's going to happen in the United States. And if that's what's happening in the United States, here's what it would look like. And they use that to predict. Now, there are reasons to think that there are reasons to use that kind of an approach. There's no single model that's right. But of course, China had a very different approach to lockdown than we had. They were much more rigorous. Um, you know, they were not allowing people to even leave their houses. They were shutting down industries. Um, they were delivering people food in their apartments. You know, people were not going outside their, their homes in Wuhan. And of course, they had massively higher levels of, of testing per capita and massively higher levels of contact tracing per capita. So there were all sorts of reasons to think that that, that precedent would not really tell you what's going to happen in the United States, but that was what that whole model was built on. So even a cursory look, and, and I read the, the assumptions paper for that model when it came out, and, uh, you know, and as did you know, many, uh, many other scientists who, who criticized it for these reasons, it was very clear that that was limited in how much it would predict the U.S. So it's really hard to think she looked at that and said, yeah, this is the best way to predict what's going to happen in the U.S. outbreak. What, what would seem to fit the fact pattern better is that um, that model was picked because it was the most consistent with the political outcomes the president wanted. It was the most optimistic relative to a lot of the other models, uh, or one of the most optimistic, and it gave a path to saying, see, we're close. We're close to succeeding on this thing. And, um, and when she briefed it, that was the part she briefed. She didn't brief the part um, about you know, the, the underlying assumptions that we would do all these things that, that she knew full well we weren't going to do. Um, and so, you know, what I, what, what I think we see with Dr. Burks, and it's really unfortunate, but it harkens back to something Tony Fauci said early on, is it's very difficult when you're sort of at the center of the maelstrom like that to resist the president. And that's true with any president. I mean, Kavita, I know you worked in the, you worked in the White House. You know, the president exists, exerts a really strong force on everyone around, around him. Um, you hope that he's exerting that in a positive way, but when you have a president like Trump, who only wants the good news and, and doesn't want to hear the bad news. And that puts a real choice to the senior people advising him. Do you give him the bad news? Do you tell him the things he wants, doesn't want to hear or not? And I think with Dr. Fauci, what we've seen is he's willing to do that. And I think what we've seen with Dr. Burks is, uh, the, is, is unfortunately something different, that she has, she has consistently hedged her scientific advice both to him and in public uh, in order to align with what he wants to hear. And I mean, that, that, to me, was the most disappointing thing in the article. There's been a lot of debate in the community about whether she is kind of playing 12-level chess. You know, is she saying, because she said crazy things in public about how detail-oriented and data-oriented he is, that 
I mean, it just doesn't pass the smell test. But the, you know, there was one line of thought that said, okay, she's doing that to garner favor with him so she can speak hard truths in private. And what this article makes clear is she wasn't speaking hard truths in private any more than she was in public. Ryan, do you want to, you can ask one question for all three or three questions for one for each. So um, maybe I'll just ask a question that uh, dovetails with the last, everybody's comments, just to try to probe a little bit um, and see how the narrative kind of holds up. I mean, I, I understand from the report, I came away with the same impression of Dr. Burks from the report that folks have said, but um, I also wondered, and then David can obviously speak to this about what sources one might rely on in a sense of this is one explanation based on certain people and, and everything's uh, qualified in the right ways in the reporting that this comes from some people. But it sounded, there's a part of me that worried that so much of the responsibilities being put on her doorstep and could even be in such a way that it takes responsibility off the president. Look how well, look how much the president was misled uh, by um, this particular individual. Whereas, let's talk about the model that they did rely on. From the earlier task force reports, uh, public um, press conferences, it seemed as though Fauci was also bought into that model. And when Burks presented it, he was alongside her in saying that this was their kind of primary vehicle. Um, so, you know, <laughs> does that not add to the narrative to some degree as to what's happened here? Um, I have wondered if uh, part of it is a different form of um, groupthink um, when they're all in the, the space together um, and optimistic thinking uh, in, in different ways. Um, but also, you know, Fauci, for example, um, did uh, much earlier in the year make statements at a time where he suggested that um, we were not, Americans didn't, uh, did not have to worry as much, though he hedged very well by saying, but who knows, it might change, uh, but we're not at great risk now. Um, and my thinking was he must have known at that point that the trajectory was not favorable whatsoever. We know some of the inside information that it was going to, it was launching towards a pandemic. Um, and instead what I thought he was trying to do is navigate what he could say publicly until he had somewhat clearance from the task force group to be able to say it publicly. And then he could say as much as he could until he got them further into where he was. Um, and that's the kind of jockeying that has to go on with the public face and the private uh, background um, negoti internal negotiations. So how much really is on Dr. Burks versus some of the other compromises that everybody's making versus it is not a single person that was doing this. It's in some ways also the responsibility of that particular group that they only allowed Dr. Burks in, in the room. It sounds as though they excluded Fauci and other um, medical experts, scientific experts from the room. So it's not, it's a, it's a kind of a combination. So that's, that's the question, just to try to think through the, the, the account that we kind of walk away with. Okay, well, let's, let's do it and go David, Kavita, and Jeremy. And I would just ask everybody, let's keep the answers to just two or three minutes so we get a couple of rounds here. David. Sure. So uh, there's a lot to unpack in your, uh, in your question, Ryan, but uh, let me just tell you where our, what our reporting showed. So first, as all of you who served in the Obama administration remember, 
and uh, David, who um, served in Grover Cleveland's administration, recalls uh, proximity uh, accounts for an that's, awful that's lot. unfair, as Grover Cleveland had two administrations, as you know. That's true. You were only in the second one. So I was That's, in the you were, second. You were too young for the first one. That's correct. <laughs> Thank you. Okay. Thank you. Um, and, and they were separated as well. Yes, yes exactly. Right. That's, that was my point. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Um, so uh, uh, Dr. Burks was the only member of the coronavirus task force, other than Vice President Pence, to have an office in the White House. And the result was that she was the one who was around for most of the meetings. And, you know, uh, as Woody Allen said in a different context, you know, a good part of life is about showing up. And she would show up with her charts and the graphs and the ones that she, she picked. Uh, if, when if, I could, if I can just interject here, Henry Kissinger, when he talked about being a Secretary of State who was also National Security Advisor, said that in the policy process, it's just like real estate, and the three things that matter most are location, location, and location. Yeah, that's absolutely right. So um, so it's notable that she had an office uh, down in the West Wing and had a small staff there uh, of economists and others who were running these numbers for her. When they put together the April 16th guidelines to the states, the ones that the president dismissed approved and then dismissed so quickly. Dr. Fauci saw it for about an hour, an hour and a half before it got publicly released. And so did other members of the uh, coronavirus task force. So they didn't have a whole lot of input time into those. He didn't have a lot of objections to it as long as people actually followed it and the president backed it up. But it was not like this was sort of well-developed. Uh, over time, as you saw, the coronavirus task force, which was filled with the medical professionals and Dr. Fauci and so forth, um, fell more and more out of favor inside the White House. In fact, to the point that we reported that it was going to be disbanded. This was news to the president, although it had been engineered by his chief of staff. And then the president decided to extend this task force, not because it did such great work, he said, but because it was popular. Right? It was important to, for them to be able to get out and communicate. As for the models that were picked, I don't think there was anything wrong with the University of Washington models. In fact, they adjusted pretty quickly as it became clear that people were not going to go follow them. But the difference between Dr. Burks and Dr. Fauci, our, reporter suge our reporting suggested, is that Dr. Fauci fundamentally was suspicious of the um, assumptions that go into any model, because he's been around long enough to know that people don't necessarily follow what the modeler believes they will do. And so he looked at these and said, well, this is great, but tell me a time that people have actually followed what was happening in the models. And that was a particularly important thing to stress inside a White House that wanted everyone to come to a certain conclusion. And with a president who is not likely to say, well, bring me the underlying numbers. Let's go through these. And why does page 17 disagree with the assumption that we're seeing out on page 42, right? That's not the Donald Trump we've uh, come to know and understand. So it was particularly incumbent on the Coronavirus Task Force and Dr. Burks as its leader and, and uh, Mike Pence to go do this. And then the, the final big problem, I think, came 
Well, I, I agree with everything you said about Dr. Fauci early on in the process. But later on in the process, he was the one saying, hey, look, if we don't get the behavior right, we may have to go back into lockdown and nothing will be worse for the economy than that. And that was when people began to try to keep him off of the networks. Dr. Burks, in contrast, and uh, kept saying things that were more reassuring. And Mike Pence wrote an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal that appeared just about a month ago saying, we've, we've cracked this one. Uh, we've defeated coronavirus. And his timing was perfect. It ran about the week before the numbers all began to surge again. And what that told us was that they were inhaling their own fumes over there. They were wanted to believe that these numbers were going down because it would justify further reopening. And that's really how we got to where we are today. Kavita reaction and then Jeremy. Yeah, David, I'm just going to very briefly, I, um, the only thing that I would add to all of this is that all you have to do is look at the fact that you don't see national medical associations and medical schools coming out with letters of support for, for Dr. Burks, you know, being mischaracterized or misrepresented or unfairly painted. And you, you certainly have seen a swelling of support. Now, is Dr. Fauci a saint and, you know, completely correct in all things? Absolutely not. But I think that I just offer that as a contrast. And it's because those of us who have worked with, you know, public health officials like Burks and like Fauci see a clear line of difference in the sense of what Jeremy said. You, you don't want to do political advisement and you actually hope the whole reason you have people with degrees like ours is so that we can tell the advisors, the political advisors, you know, and the president, the hard, you know, just the facts. And then their hard job is to kind of do something with that as a political kind of set. That's what David Axelrod did. Right. So I, I would just offer that all you have to do is look at the contrast between kind of the outcries um, when you saw what was critical about, you know, Fauci or Burks or Fauci v. Burks. And then the only thing I'll just do to add a little bit of um, added thought that wasn't in the New York Times piece, but kind of the inside baseball conversation has been who really has it out for Burks? I mean, the reporting is factual and very clear, but you got to wonder, look at all the players, right? There's, it's very clear she was rising in the ranks of the president. We're looking at maybe a second term cabinet position. You know, you, you, you can fill in the blanks of what all the um, rumor mill was abound around how um, a rising political star, so to speak, in, near Jared Kushner and near inside advisors, proximity is power. Could that translate to something and who does that threaten? And I, and, and I think that there's, I don't think that that's unreasonable to think about. And that also adds to why you didn't see certain people prominent in the administration themselves coming forward and saying, I believe everything she says. I stand by all of that. She's the most, you know, she's the strongest advocate for um, the medical community inside these briefings. You, you, you notice what you didn't see. And I think that's important. But Kavita, it is important to note that while they didn't come to her defense, we were very heavily criticized and charged with fake news by the uh, press secretary, Kaylee McEnany, who uh, came out with uh, uh, an ad hominem attack on the Times reporting. And then by the president himself in this conversation yesterday with Fox News, 
who then reassured everybody that uh, Dr. Burks had given him excellent advice and then went on to say that she was amazing because she could do 15 different things with scarves. I, that, I, I do recall that. And I, I, I will just, I, there is not, again, I think for anybody who wants to be critical, fake news, this and that, again, just look at the fact that when yep. Fauci was criticized, I mean, my own medical school, we all had letters, petitions, the editor of the Journal of the American Medical Association, for goodness sakes, you know. So, and you just contrast that with the actions around Dr. Burks. And, and of course, we did, we did offer Dr. Burks several opportunities to be interviewed. She declined them. We sent a series of 26 or 27 questions a few days before the story appeared. They answered two or three of them. Well, David, if it comes down to your credibility or Kaylee McEnany, I know where I'm <laughs> I, I know where you vote too, David. <laughs> I told you, you'd be surprised. It's, it's all you, David. It's all you, uh, uh, Jeremy. Yeah, um, I mean, I think Ryan's point about not getting too caught up in the secondary characters here is really important because ultimately it is the president who sets the tone. Um, and I think, I think that's one of the really tr- kind of tragic things almost about this story is, you know, Dr. Burks, prior to this, was one of the most highly respected public health experts in the government and even in the country. Um, and, you know, she was appointed in the, by the Obama administration on the basis of excellent work she'd done throughout her career. So she, you know, she is someone who clearly, under the right leadership, flourishes and does tremendous work and, is, and, and, and you know, and was a strong leader. Um, and, and so I think you have to look at what's happened to her in the Trump White House and say, that's not just Dr. Burks. That's Dr. Burks in the context of a hugely problematic leadership culture in the White House. Um, and I don't doubt that if you took her, you know, um, if you took the president out of the equation, I suspect you'd see uh, quite a difference from her. And it is difficult. And I, you know, Ryan's point about uh, Dr. Fauci as well in February you know, he did make statements in February that, um, at least as they were being heard by the public, seemed to underplay the, the risk that the, you know t- saying things like the risk is the risk to the American public is low. At that time in February, it was, but certainly that was not a, a long-range prediction. I suspect he was, as you said, Ryan, navigating kind of how far could he go without running afoul of the administration, uh, because the party line through February was very much that everything was under control and was fine and there was no problem and let's just keep the economy rolling. Um, so everyone has to navigate those kind of headwinds in this administration, but different people manage them differently. And there was an interview that, that Fauci did with Politico in late February or early May or March, where he said, you know, it's very difficult. You don't want to go to war with the president. And it is very difficult. And I've seen good people do it. It's very difficult to tell the president what he needs to hear rather than what he wants to hear. I'm, I'm slightly paraphrasing. Um, and I, I, I think what you see with Drs. Fauci and Burks is two different approaches to that, to that dilemma. Um, you know, Fauci has done his best to continue telling hard truth to the public and seemingly within the administration, and he has been marginalized for that. Uh, Dr. Burks has taken a different tack, and there's been some speculation that maybe they've intentionally had a good cop, bad cop thing going on. I don't know. Um, She's taken a different approach, and, she, and, and by telling, you know, telling the, the White House and the public what the president wants to hear, she is now the inner circle. She is the only public health person who's in the inner circle, um, and that's not a coincidence, right? So I think ultimately, you know, when you have a president 
who only wants to hear good news, who doesn't want to hear anything that um, that kind of contradicts his preferred political narrative, and who is very insistent that he sees this through a very personal lens and a very political lens. It's hard. It's hard to swim against the current on that. It is legitimately difficult, especially when your office is in the White House rather than up at the NIH and Bethesda. And um, and so, you know, I have some sympathy for Dr. Burks on that score as much as I, I really object to how she is. She's handled her role. Um, you know, consistently what we've seen with this administration on COVID is that they they shape their scientific guidance to meet their political preferences. So you see that you see that in the choice of models. You see that in the guidance on school reopening. You see that in the guidance on reopening of religious institutions, where CDC had one set of guidance, the White House vetoed it and sent out something very watered down. And you see it very clearly in the state reopening process, where, as, as the, uh, the the reporting said, you know the the objective there was to push the political risk onto the governors. The objective there was not to have a coherent national approach to ending the virus. It was to push the decisions onto the governors, and that positioned the president to basically bash them if he felt they were reopening too slowly and bash them if it all blew up in his face because ultimately they were the ones making the decisions and not him. And when that is the overarching atmosphere in the White House, uh, you know, it, it is very, very difficult to give good public health advice. And so I think that that's, you know, that is what Dr. Burks has run into. And, you know, unfortunately, I think that's what, you know, that's what she's kind of bought into and how she's approached her role, at least based on some of her public statements and based on this reporting. Well, I think that's a really important point. And as somebody who's written a lot about how White Houses work, um, at the end of the day, it's the guy who's sitting at the head of the table, or someday hopefully the woman who's sitting at the head of the table. It's the president. And someday somebody's going to write some interesting history of this administration about how different people of different qualities of character responded to toxic leadership. Because the way Jim Mattis did, or Rex Tillerson did, or H.R. McMaster did, it's very different from the way John Bolton did, or Tony Fauci did, or or Mike Pence did. Um, and and it's it's telling, and 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 there's some important analysis to be done. Anyway, we've got about seven minutes, and so I, I'd like to go to all four of you, and I'll I'll start with Ryan. I, and, and just sort of say, given where we are in this crisis right now, which was not projected in any model, um, uh, what is worrisome to you the most? You know, uh, just to briefly summarize it, you know, this past week, almost every day, there were 60,000 cases, some days 70,000 new cases. We crept up from um, a few weeks ago, 600 people dying every day, 500 people. To, we're back up to 1,200 people dying each day. Uh, it looks like the death numbers will continue high for a while. Um, it looks like school is in jeopardy. A lot of things in the fall are. Um, and I'll just say to you, to, and you can respond to this or not, one of the things that worries me the most is not only is everybody dismissed in a president and DeSantis in Florida and Abbott in Texas and some of these others, not only have they not responded as I, as I think they should have to this crisis as it is, nobody's dealing with the fact that come October, November, December, flu is coming back. This thing may come back and you could be back in lockdown 
in October, November, and December. Um, and I was listening to a conversation with, I don't know, some, some members of Congress about the, 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 you know, latest sort of bailout package. And, and, and there was no hint in their discussion that this problem is likely to get worse again in a couple of months. So a minute, a minute and a half each. What's what worries you the most right now? Starting with Ryan, no go, David, Kavita, Jeremy. Um, so I think the thing that worries me the most is the trajectory, um, and and what you've described, David, in terms of the mortality rates and and the like. But I, I guess the way I just rephrase the question for my own purposes a little bit is what worries me the most that I think is not being covered enough are the other collateral consequences, health consequences of COVID that are not about um, mortality. But the discovery of um, the COVID survivors who are experiencing serious health complications, though they have survived. Um, And I don't think that's being fully taken into account and understood by the public and necessarily by policymakers as well. Um, And I know some of those cases anecdotally but the fact that I know so many cases anecdotally uh, worries me as well um, about how widespread that is with people uh, suffering from extraordinary levels of fatigue, for example, um, plus other kinds of lung complications and the like um, that's uh, really going to also impact the ability for anybody to come back from this uh, in terms of how the economy does and how people's health or public health issues are being uh, taken into account. Thank you. Uh, David? Um, Well, first, while we've been having this discussion, the president has made a decision to cancel the Republican National Convention. And uh, I think that reflects growing awareness inside the administration that there's only so long that you can say, don't pay any attention to what's happening here. Remember, he moved it from North Carolina because the governor would not... um, Give him an assurance that people couldn't be jammed into a into the uh, the convention hall and wouldn't be required to move, to uh, wear masks, and then moved it into a state that is one of the great hotspots right now and has now had to cancel the entire thing. So I think that there is the beginning of recognition inside this administration, belatedly, that if there is a big revival of uh, coronavirus in the fall or it just continues at the current rate, there's no question that he will be blamed for underreacting. And I think the big question now is, will he be blamed for reacting far, far too late? Um, and will that reaction be, be fulsome enough? Um, I think that uh, what worries me the most uh, about heading into this is that we still don't understand an awful lot about the transmission rates, and we've lost our chance to bring this down during the summer to the point where you would nearly kill it well enough that you could take some risks in the fall. And now I don't think we're going to be willing to take those risks. We probably shouldn't be. And the economic impact of that is going to be huge. Kavita? Yeah, just briefly, Making room in hospitals and getting PPE just so people can die, I mean, that doesn't seem like a great strategy. And it feels like all of what we're talking about 
from the staffing, the advice, and even canceling the RNC. I mean, who on earth thought we could hold the RNC in Jacksonville, Florida, like a period, much less when you've got record deaths. So you're you're missing the point here. The president is being very presidential. (laughs) This is extremely, it's a mature Trump finally coming to grips. I'm sorry. So I'll just, I'll, I'll just say, we still have a seven-day turnaround for test results. We are back order to get rapid, you know, testing like kits out because they're just so damn expensive and you can't produce enough of them. And they had a hearing in the subcommittee of the House today on supply chain. Like we're still talking about things and we have no potential solution. So as a default, the country is just crossing our fingers and handing out billions of dollars to manufacturers, several of which have had no precedent to actually deliver a product ever. And we're just, even I'm one of those people that's evangelistically praying that we actually can get a vaccine and we didn't have to be here. And that's what I think about all day, all night. True. Jeremy? Yeah, um, you know, picking picking what the, the biggest concern is is kind of tough because um, there's a big menu. Um, just on the flu point, I think there's some reason to think that mightn't be as bad as we feared. Um, the, the Southern Hemisphere flu season this year has actually been much lighter than normal because of all the COVID measures. And, um, and it's been the lightest one in years. So there's a good chance that we may see that's that very well. So, I mean, that's worth crossing your fingers for. Um, but in terms of, you know, my biggest concern is we're, as, as has been the case from the beginning, we're still not thinking around the corner in terms of where this is likely to go. And, and trying to anticipate and be ready for it to come rather than wait for it to happen and react. And this is, this is a virus that pushes react. Uh, it, you know, the reason that schools are closed now, uh, and my, you know, my kids will be in virtual school through at least the first semester of the year here in Montgomery County in Maryland. The reason schools are not able to open now is because of decisions that governors were making at the president's encouragement back in May and, and early June. Um, and uh, the reason that we have testing delays now is because of decisions that were not being made back in April and May to have federal intervention to expand the testing supply chain and, and to and to dramatically expand national testing capacity. So, you know, we keep waiting for these things to blow up in our face and then try to retroactively fix them. And that is a recipe for continuing to lose to the, vi- to the virus and continuing to lose to the virus. And if we can't anticipate, think around the corner um, and try to look at, you know, what are the decisions that we're making now how are those going to affect the, the, the terrain two to three months from now? Um, because that is, you know, we, we don't see what's happening in real time. Whatever we're seeing in front of us is what happened in terms of transmission two weeks ago. The deaths we're seeing now are the people who are getting infected a month ago. So, you know, we're always behind the curve just inherently based on the nature of this virus. And we have to factor that into our decision making and be planning not on the basis of what we're seeing in front of our eyes, but planning on the basis of where do we want to be in three to six months. And it's possible other countries are doing it. We're not. And, you know, on everything from, you know, the president only now saying, okay, yeah, wear masks, only now saying, yeah, okay, probably not a good idea to hold the convention in Florida. You know, those are decisions that were obvious months ago. And we're only, you know, he's only making them now. And as long as he remains months behind on very basic decisions like that, we're going to keep losing. Yeah, no question about it. This is a, for the, one of the great problems we've got. It was hinted at in the Times article we were talking about at the beginning is the president, quite apart from his toxic personality and management style, is guiding this by looking in the rearview mirror. He's not looking ahead. We are looking at lagging indicators 
and responding to the lagging indicators too late. And so we are well behind the curve, and that has a huge cost in a crisis like this. Um, fortunately for our listeners, they have the opportunity to hear from experts who are able to look ahead, who are able to provide them with um, kind of insights that each of you has been providing them with. And uh, hopefully we'll have you back again soon, and hopefully the news will get somewhat better. Um, in the meantime, uh, I hope uh, all of you out there who are listening um, will join me in thanking uh, Dr. Kavita Patel and Jeremy Kanondike and uh, David Sanger and Ryan Goodman. We hope you will join us on um, Monday for the next podcast, where our special guest will be. Uh, a fan of our podcast, a loyal fan of Deep State Radio, it turns out, Mary Trump, uh, who, David, you may not know this, but Mary Trump has a Deep State Radio mug and a Deep State Radio challenge pin and has been a paying member for some time. I've been walking around Vermont with my Deep State Radio mask. Yeah, well, exactly. Well, so she's going to be joining us Monday. I think there may be another special guest on Monday. Uh, And for more and to learn about what else we've got coming? Go to the dsrnetwork.com. While you're there, get one of those masks, get one of those mugs, and become a member and help support this and these kind of conversations. Um, uh, it doesn't cost very much, and it, it helps us enormously. Thank you very much, everybody, and stay healthy. <laughs>